Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to another episode of Que Pasa, HSIs. This episode marks the halfway point in season one, and I'm excited about the feedback and responses to the launch of the podcast. For those of you just now discovering and tuning into Que Pasa, HSIs, welcome. The podcast was created with and for HSI practitioners and scholars, and is something I have been dreaming about for a long time. Shout out to Alan A.C. Williams for all the behind the scenes production work and Estefania Toledo for promoting the show. In this episode, I have the honor of talking to Dr. Gabriela Kovat Sanchez, who is a faculty scholar for the Native Resource Center at San Diego State University and lecturer for the Department of American Indian Studies. As a practitioner, scholar, and professor at an HSI, she is well-versed in the praxis of servingness while also being intentional in compl complicating the H in HSIs. Her research focuses on the experiences of diasporic indigenous Latinx students and nuances the way we think about Latinidad. Her research pedagogies and community engagement are deeply tied to her longtime involvement within four new Savi Mistec communities in California. Dr. Acoba Sanchez stays busy, not only as an educator and community leader, but also as a DJ in the community. The release date of this episode is intentional as we honor and acknowledge Indigenous Peoples Day on October 10th, 2012. Dr. Kovat Sanchez's research is groundbreaking and essential at this moment in time as the mastizo Latine community grapples with our own moves towards settler innocence and becomes more consciously aware of the vibrant and growing communities of Indigenous Latinx people across the Americas, in the U.S., and entering colleges and universities at high rates, especially HSIs. As an interdisciplinary researcher and educator, Dr. Kovat Sanchez is doing work that is personal, political, and communal. I had the honor of serving as guest editor for her AERA open article titled, If We Don't Do It, Nobody's Going to Talk About It, Indigenous Students Disrupting Monolithic Notions of Latinidad at Hispanic Serving Institutions, which is available in the show notes. On a personal note, I first met Gabby at the AHI conference back in 2016 when she was a doctoral student, and I have been fangirling her ever since. She continues to impress me with her research practice and community engagement, and I often invite her to be in community with me because I enjoy learning with her. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree in International Relations and Affairs from UC Davis, a Master of Arts in Latin American Studies from San Diego State University, and a PhD in Education from Claremont Graduate University. Prior to pursuing her PhD, she was a director of college and career success at Vario Logan College Institute. She has published extensively, and I encourage you to read her work, some of which is available in the show notes, and also follow her on social media. And with that, enjoy the show. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Dr. Kovat Sanchez, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Get Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about what's up with HSIs, let's talk a little bit about you. 
So first thing, because this is an episode or a podcast dedicated to higher education and higher education professionals, um, I like to hear about people's journeys into higher ed and through higher ed. So let's start there. Tell us about your higher ed journey and your educational journey more broadly, because it's, it's an interesting one, um, particularly as a transnational Cali, Cali Pulkenya. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Doctora, for having me. Um, yeah, I think so. The the Kalipulkenya term is a term that I made up, <laughs> uh, but it's it's kind of I was seeking a word that would identify the um, my life experiences. So I grew up in Merced, California, in the Central Valley, um, but my mom's side of the family is from Acapulco, Guerrero, and so I spent a big part of my life traveling back and forth between Merced, this very rural agricultural town. And Acapulco, which is a much larger city in southern Mexico. And so I did go to school, um, elementary school in Acapulco. And so I do identify as an Acapulqueña, but I also have very close ties to growing up in California and more specifically the Central Valley, uh, which I think is a very unique and distinct experience that I have a lot of love for. Um, so yeah, I, I identify as a somebody who's transnational that grew up going back and forth between two countries. And I think that I'm really grateful for that experience. I think as a, as a young person trying to adapt and enter new classrooms constantly, um, in the end, I think was a really helpful skill that I developed in making friends and things like that. Uh, but I'm grateful for my parents' intentionality in ensuring that. My sister and I both had a, a very unique Mexican experience, uh, in addition to being young women of color, Chicanas, Mexicanas, growing up in the U.S. Um, so that's how I, I, I use the term Kalipolkenia to kind of, I, I'm very much grounded in both of these spaces, and I don't see myself one without the other. Um, but I, so I did also a portion of middle school in Acapulco, and then I moved back um, to the States in seventh grade. Uh, and then from there on, I finished out my my high school years in Merced, go Bears, <laughs> Merced High School. Uh, and I ended up choosing uh, going to UC Davis. And interestingly enough, the reason I went to UC Davis or I chose UC Davis was because I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> and I tell this to my students a lot because it's OK uh, when we're grappling with deciding to change our majors. It's really unfair to expect someone who's 17 or 18 to know exactly what they want to do with their life. And so for me, I started at Davis as an animal science major, and I just realized that that was not for me, uh, especially when I was trying to find spaces where it tied to my community. And that was completely absent. And it, ha it has a lot to do with some of the work that I've done around STEM, students of color in STEM. Um, and then I switched majors to international relations, which was incredibly interdisciplinary. So I was taking Chicano studies, sociology, anthropology, poli sci, econ. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And so much so that I did my last year um, of college at UNAM, at the Universidad Autónoma de México in Mexico City. I studied abroad. And I think that going to school at UNAM, the largest public institution in Latin America uh, was also really foundational in the work that I do today, 
thinking about uh, indigeneity and the way that we, we grapple with it, particularly those of us who are mestizos. Um, and that experience led me to want to get a master's in Latin American studies. So I think I wasn't truly sure yet about education <laughs> uh, or like being, but I was really interested in exploring my own history and kind of articulating and naming some of my experiences, uh, both in Mexico and the US. Um, so I ended up um, getting my master's in Latin American studies at SDSU at San Diego State. Um, and then I swore I would never go back to school <laughs> after my master's. Um, it was it took it was a two-year program. It took me four years. A lot of it had to do with having to work and not being able to be in exclusively um, a student, uh, among other things, as a, a young woman of color in, uh, uh, in graduate school. And I told myself I would never go back to college, that that was it, that was sufficient for me. Uh, and I ended up uh, getting a job uh, at a nonprofit college prep program here in San Diego called Barrio Logan College Institute, or BLCI. Uh, and it's a college access, college prep program for students in Barrio Logan who are first gen students of color. Uh, and it starts in third grade. Uh, so we start in third grade and go all the way through high school and beyond. And so I started out as the elementary school coordinator. So I used to teach third, fourth and fifth grade after school classes that were always centered around college access um, but also coupled with like cultural components, bringing in parents into the classroom regularly, things like that. Um, and then eventually I was promoted to become the director of college and career success at BLCI, um, which was where I worked with our juniors and seniors in applying to college. Um, and so I think that's where I was reminded of how important my college journey was for me. and and how transformational it was in me being able to articulate and identify my own lived experiences and being able to name them. Um, and so after being at BLCA for five years, I decided to go get my PhD. <laughs> and then that's where we are now, right? <laughs> well, I graduated uh, in 2019. And so right now I, uh, I teach um, in the Department of American Indian Studies. Um, previously, I taught in the Chicano Chicana Studies Department, um, both at San Diego City College and SDSU. Um, and I'm also a faculty scholar for our Native Resource Center. And there I coordinate a peer mentor program for our first year and transfer students who identify as Native and Indigenous. And we support them in their transition uh, during their first year at San Diego State. So hopefully I covered everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, your educational journey. It's its an interesting one. Thank you for being so um, open and honest about it, right? Like that we have to, we know that our journeys aren't linear. <laughs> we don't set out to do one thing and then they we just stay on that path. So, um, so thank you for sharing. And I can see how your research is very much informed uh, by your experiences, right? And, and, and being transnational and, and, and the experience that your parents provided for you. Um, that, that's a, you know, it's a really, 
really cool. And it, it definitely informs the work you do, right? As I think about um, the work that I know that you're doing, which which we'll get into. Um, I didn't know you went to Davis, actually. I guess I always assumed I knew you were from Merced. So I assumed you went to Merced, but you didn't. Yeah, you see, Merced didn't exist yet. <laughs> oh, that's why. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, otherwise I, I could have possibly ended up going there, but it didn't exist yet. It, it right. opened the year I graduated from college. Interesting. So you saw like it evolved though, like the university in the middle of this pretty rural Central Valley town. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And I, what's really neat is working at BOCI, I did send a couple students to UC Merced and uh, I mean and uh, of those students they had probably the most positive experience than Mm. other students in other places and so um, yeah UC Merced is and as a college counselor like uh, I was I would work with college admissions and they would bring me over to places because if they couldn't afford to bring like the students they would bring all the college counselors Um, and so we I got to see like the kind of the, the vibe that the, the schools offer. And so I have a lot of students that had really positive experiences there. I'm like, wow, I wish, I wish you see myself had existed when I was getting ready to go. Yeah, no, that's good to, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I, you know, I know I've heard a lot of different things about Merced. They've had a really interesting um, history. So that's good that you've had students have a good history, um, particularly as we think about, they were sort of born an HS, born as an HSI, right? They immediately had the 25% um, Hispanic Latinx students. Um, So jumping into that, let's talk a little bit about HSIs and your journey. Um, Tell us a little bit about your servingness journey or otherwise stated, how did HSIs come into your consciousness? Um, So like I mentioned, I went to UC Davis. Uh, This was 2001. So my friends and I used to joke that we knew everyone who spoke Spanish on campus um, (laughs) because there was like 10 of us. Um, And so I think when I went to, obviously when I went to UNAM, I was like, oh my God, this is, i De aquí soy. Like, I, why didn't I just do my whole college over here? Um, but when I uh, ended up going to grad school at San Diego State, um, this was like in 2006, the, this, the distinction between the two campuses was very noticeable. And at that point, I didn't realize that what was an HSI or things like that. But just arriving at San Diego State and seeing the demographic, the student demographic was so different and it's funny now to think that some of my students are like it's still a very white campus but I'm like no compared to UC Davis in 2001 I thought I I the fact that I just heard people speaking Spanish in the classroom um or just around campus to me was um was very um shocking and but it made me very happy and I think it wasn't until I started working at Barrio Logan College Institute when I was working with students in choosing their the colleges that they were going to apply to that the HSI component became a lot more um, relevant and I was very conscious of it in terms of uh, what schools would be good fits for our students. Um, and so, of course, um, I mean, working with students, um, most of them would stay locally uh, which is really common with um, uh, with first gen students, and I think that it was 
um, really helpful for many students to stay locally. Um, but it was very mm, apparent that a lot of the students who did attend HSIs were more likely to um, continue and be retained in college. And so I think that as a college counselor, that was I was becoming more aware of why HSIs or this the the categorization of HSIs was really important, um, particularly when I was working with first gen Latinx students uh, from a very uh, Latinx based community in San Diego. Um, and then once I started getting my once I started my PhD program, I started working very closely with my mentor and advisor, Dr. Felicia Herrera Villarreal. And so her work is around specifically um, HSIs, but also STEM. Uh, and so I think it was there that I gained even more insight about um, kind of the way the categorization functions. And um, after finishing my PhD, I had a postdoc uh, with the research in uh, Research and Equity Scholarship Institute with Dr. Herrera. And we were able to work directly with HSIs in the San Diego area and more specifically community college HSIs because those are also very distinct. Um, and I was able to meet with faculty and administrators around their HSI grants and how these were specifically serving Latinx students around STEM. Um, and so I think it's been interesting and now that I've, I've worked, I'm very like deep in San Diego State <laughs> as an HSI. Um, I know that like the, the research, uh, the recent paper that you put out on like race neutrality, right? is like so prominent. But now that I'm working in an HSI and working with other institutions that are named as HSIs, um, the issue is that they're not actually naming Latinx students, right? Or they're referring to them as uh, commuter students or just diverse students. And so, so now being on the inside, I'm, I'm a little more conscious of uh, what's, how students are maybe not even being served, right? Because we're kind of clumping them into this like larger category. And I saw that, we saw that especially um, when we think about like STEM initiatives, uh, HSI STEM initiatives and how mm, they're more generalized. They're not necessarily specific to Latinx students, let alone try to unpack what does Latinx or Hispanic mean. Yep, exactly. Ooh, we got so much, so much work to do around that um, <laughs> idea of like HSI doesn't mean all students. And a lot of people think about it like that. It like will trickle down. I'm like, yes. It might, but why doesn't it trickle the other way? Like trickle down to the white students, but focus on your, you know, mm -hmm. your Latinx, your Hispanic, your students of color. So, whew, yeah, I got, I got a lot to say about that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, it's interesting to hear you talk about the coming from the um, counselor side, right? From the high school counselor side. Um, that's something I haven't thought a lot about. Um, and I think because I don't think a lot about becoming an HSI, like actually hitting the 25% because most institutions I work with are already there, right? They're already trying right. to figure it out, but there's institutions trying to actually get to the 25, right? And I don't, you know, I don't know how many are doing, you know, thinking about that, like, are your high school counselors even aware, right? Are, are they aware that an HSI is good, right? You, it sounded like you're saying like HSIs, you know, I wanted my students to go to a, a place that was like an HSI or that was good, right? Mm -hmm. Or where they were going to hear lang their language, they, you know, maybe their home language at school, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so thank you for saying that. Cause I think I, there's a lot uh, to be done there, particularly as institutions like, like a UCLA and a UC Berkeley, as we talk about the UC system are actively trying to become, they're just trying to get to the 25%. You know, they got to come up with a whole different, different methods than just transforming the white structures, which, you know, obviously we, we know most HSIs, that's what they're trying to figure out, right. That like structurally, right. how do you change it? So I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot for us to unpack still. And we're going to unpack some of that um, and particularly start to dig into this idea of Latinidad, right? In your research, you disrupt monolithic notions of Latinidad and education that historically perpetuate the invisibility of indigenous people. This includes current projects addressing the representation of indigeneity within emerging K through 12 ethnic studies curriculum, as well as the conceptual expansion of Latinidad in relationship to Hispanic serving institutions. Um, and the initiative. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about complicating Latinidad and specifically, what does this look like or what should we be doing in HSIs to really complicate Latinidad? Yes, I think I'm very visual. So usually when I when I give presentations and stuff, I like to show like an image of an umbrella, right? And thinking about when we think of Latinidad, it's a, it's very much an umbrella category, and there's so many different types of peoples that are under that umbrella. And so I usually tell people, well, today we're going to flip that umbrella upside down <laughs> and think about how in our attempts to kind of create these labels, at the same time, we are conflating ethnicity and race and nationality, and it really complicates the way that we um, talk about servingness for students, right? Because we're generalizing, well, what does a Latinx student mean? And the reality is that it's incredibly diverse. And I would also add that under that umbrella, there is a hierarchy, a racial hierarchy that persists as a result of colonization in Latin America. And so I think a lot of times when people um, think about Latinidad or Latinx identity, uh, dominant mestizo narratives tend to persist, right? So and it's a result of these enduring colonialities of power where we think about, oh, Latinos are this mixed mixed, uh, mixed heritage people, right? Of like indigenous and Spanish descent, right? And, and more specifically, we think about indigenous as this very monolithic thing. Um, but the reality is that there's a lot of inner group diversity uh, and inequities that continue to be manifested uh, within these spaces. Um, and that also includes internalized oppression as well. Um, and so a lot of times when I give presentations, I like to get a feel for the room and I'll typically ask people, uh, because my work specializes more in uh, Mexico and Mexican history tied to indigenous peoples in Mexico and now in the diaspora in the US, I usually like to ask the audience if they know how many indigenous languages are spoken in Mexico. And I would say that the people's guesses are getting better, <laughs> but usually the responses are like two, five. Um, and I mean, recently I do these presentations at like college campuses, right? And I think the most I've gotten is like 10. And wow. so I like, <laughs> wow, I like, yeah, right. You think, <clears throat> and it's a good gauge too, to see like, uh, if people are conscious of even in just Mexico alone, the linguistic diversity that exists and also disrupts this idea that somebody who identifies as Mexican is exclusively mestizo, 
But the reality is that there are over 68 different languages spoken in uh, indigenous languages spoken in Mexico. And I like to sometimes bring in, if we think about Guatemala, for instance, uh, there's 25 different languages spoken in Guatemala. And so it's helpful uh, for to for me to paint a picture that we're talking about incredibly diverse peoples. And that when I say 68 languages, these are distinct languages, right? They're not um, dialects, which is also a really um, common term that we use to refer to indigenous languages, which is very much tied to a history of colonialism, right? Where we're trying to delegitimize indigenous languages uh, in order to promote the dominant Spanish language. Um, and so that's what I mean by, I guess, interrogating Latinidad is just first poking at, this is very diverse, right? It was not just one or two different types of peoples. And then if we're thinking about Latin America as a whole, then that's even more, right? I'm just talking about Mexico. Okay, so in, in thinking about this complication of, of Latinidad, um, you you know you start to bring in this idea of colonial logics, um, which you've written about, right? You've written about recently about colonial logics and colonial healing in higher ed. Um, and as you know, it's something I've written about, like this idea of decolonizing HSIs, which I think now when I reflect back, it was very under theorized and under really, you know, digging it. That that's a complicated thing, right? To say oh, we should just decolonize HSIs. Um, but when I tell people that they like it, right? They're like, say more. Like, what does decolonizing an institution look like? What would it actually look like to disrupt colonial logics and move towards, you know, healing um, for everybody, right? Because it's really a process for everybody. So, you know, and thinking about our listeners, our practitioners, right? And, and HSI, that's really who the, the podcast is intended for. Um, what are your thoughts on like, what does that look like in practice? Like, how do we actually disrupt colonial logics um, and move towards healing? I think, well, first, after, and this will probably be related to some of the other questions, but after teaching in the American Indian Studies Department and working for the Native Resource Center, maybe this is very uh, the pessimist in me, but I don't think we can decolonize institutions at all. But what we can do is look to what's happening on the outside, um, what's happening in community, and we can really as practitioners, as well as scholars, see what's already being done outside the institution to, to validate student experiences and we can learn from that. Um, so a lot of the, actually it's a paper that I'm trying to submit very soon, but it's around community-based practices, um, but thinking about how students and this gets tied to one of one of the last articles I published where students didn't necessarily, and I'm speaking specifically of indigenous um, New Sabi, Mixteco, Zapoteco, and Nahua students uh, with ties to Pueblos Originarios in Mexico that are attending schools in, in the US, didn't necessarily find themselves fitting into these spaces that were supposed to be centered for Latinx students. Um, and so a lot of those specific experiences of in many ways feeling excluded led them to seek spaces outside of the university uh, to create these um, spaces of validation for younger generations. So we see the development of a uh, grassroots um, community center, a community garden, a 
yearly youth conference. And so these are all the things that they're doing, not at the institution itself, but outside of it, because they recognize that there's this huge need. Um, but also, I mean, in this last article that I published, I talked about um, what Lee Patel calls a fugitive acts of learning. And so this, these opportunities to, despite having very invalidating experiences on campus, uh, they're taking some of these things into their own hands, like determining the topic of their assignment, right? And uh, choosing to write about their communities or um, taking on positions of leadership in student organizations, but then bringing to the forefront issues around indigenous peoples as opposed to um, just like this more broader Latinx conversation. Or in this case, when we talk about California specifically, because I think that uh, I mean, HSIs are diverse, but they also are distinct geographically. But when we think about HSIs in California, it tends to be a very Mexican-American Chicano um, perspective because that's what many of us are. Um, uh, but in the case of the students that I've had the pleasure of working with and collaborating with, is even disrupting that, right? Even though they may all have ties to Mexico as a country of origin, uh, their experiences uh, as Zapoteco students, as New Savi students is very different than the experiences of those who are Mestizo Chicano experiences. Okay, okay so um, some of the things you're talking about, you talk about in your article, if we don't do it, nobody's going to talk about it. Indigenous students disrupting monolithic notions of Latinidad, Hispanic serving institutions, public and published in AERA Open, and you really dig into these experiences. Um, and I, I learned a lot. I know when I read it um, multiple times, because um, obviously I was the editor on it. Um, it got me thinking a lot, right, about why we have to complicate uh, Latinidad and why we can't think about the H in HSIs as a monolith. Um, because it's not, right? It, it isn't. Um, and depending on where you're at in the region, it, it's not. So talk to us a little bit about the article and specifically, again, thinking about what can practitioners take like from the article, not take, they learn, let's say learn, yeah. what can they learn um, from the article about being better about not making the H a monolith when they're thinking about serving this? Yeah, I, the so this, this recent article is I pulled some of that from my larger dissertation. And so it's focused specifically on the students um, that attended HSIs because there's a, a larger um, a group of students. Uh, but these students specifically are indigenous, Nusavi, uh, Mixteco, Zapoteco, and Nahua students who, again, like I mentioned, have ties to pueblos originarios in Mexico, but have lived most of their life in the US. And so a big part of talking about their experiences at HSI started with first defining what their ex lived experiences were growing up, uh, especially being indigenous and growing up in um, predominantly Mexican migrant communities. And I think something that was very much at the forefront of all our testimonials was that they consistently experienced discrimination from uh, their Mexican uh, peers, right? And this is something that, this is kind of the trajectory of my work um, prior to this is really pointing out and highlighting the racial hierarchies that persist in, in specifically our Mexican community and Mexican-American, Chicanx, 
uh, and Mexican migrant communities and how a lot of these colonial logics that we talk about are manifested in spaces, right? In community spaces, in the classroom. And so a lot of these students talked about um, experiences of discrimination with their Mexican classmates, right? Where they're um, repeating racial slurs um, towards indigenous people. They're being teased for um, what they look like, right? That are all tied to like stereotypes of who is indigenous based on their skin color and their stature. Um, they're also being, they also experience uh, bullying around their indigenous language, um, especially if their indigenous language was the one they spoke at home. And so they spoke Spanish with an accent. Uh, and so that was a constant experience that they were having. So. So I, I couldn't talk about their experiences at the university or at the community college um, without looking first at their, their childhoods, right? And how uh, col colonialism or coloniality is still persistent in the way that they interact with people that we would assume on the outside are the same as them, right? That they're, oh, well, they're all from Mexico, right? So they all have something in common, but the reality is that there's already this uh, really difficult experience um, growing up. So the, the students that I that are in the article talk about attending HSIs, but mainly talking about these invalidating experiences where in some ways they were able to take classes in Chicano studies or in Latin American studies, even anthropology that touched on indigenous history, which was very exciting for them because that wasn't something that they had in their K-12 experience, but then feeling very disillusioned when the conversations or the classes around indigeneity were exclusively set in the past. And so it perpetuates again, as a, in a larger societal scale, this idea that indigenous people no longer exist anymore. Uh, and this, we can also see this I mean, in the whole hemisphere, um, this narrative about indigeneity being something exclusively in the past or also being romanticized. Um, and, and some of the critiques that the students offered were if indigeneity was spoken about, it was exclusively about Aztec or Mexica heritage, which we know um, there's so many other <laughs> indigenous peoples, right? And so reducing indigeneity in Latin America to um, Aztec or Mexica identity was again, very invalidating for the students. Um, and so I think that those experiences um, kind of highlight that even sometimes an HSI's good intentions of like, let's create courses or let's create a Latinx um, center for students or let's create a, a Latinx centered summer bridge program or um, student housing. Like I, I see the, the attempts of like trying to represent that space, but a lot of these students talked about how, well, this is a space for Chicanos, not for me, right? Or this is a space for Mestizos, not for me, because they were still experiencing a lot of the things that they had all their lives, right? Where they're, they're being reminded that they're different. Um, in some cases, uh, students were being exotified, right? So we have mestizos who are just trying to make connections to those lost indigenous um, roots, 
but are maybe going about it in a very harmful way where they're like, oh, wow, I want to be like you and tell me more. And, and they started feeling tokenized in these spaces. Um, so I think for practitioners, um, it's important to think about the programs we have in question, the programs that we're creating from whose lens are they coming from? Because I think um, many of us, I think part of our role is to understand the incredible diversity that exists within Latinidad. And that's, that's a job in itself, right? It's like, just because I, uh, I have a, a heritage that would fall under this Latinx umbrella doesn't mean that I am the all-knowing <laughs> uh, representative of culture, right? Because what tends to happen is that the programs and spaces that are created are exclusively shaped around whoever's running them. Um, and so I think part of that includes diversifying um, the folks that are working in these spaces. But at the same time, I also don't wanna place a burden on people who don't fall within the dominant Latinx identity to be the ones responsible for, for getting creative, right? And, and coming up with other things. So I think a, a big role, um, is just taking, taking the time to understand the diversity that exists on campus in order to avoid those pitfalls. Um, like a, an example that I, comes to mind is, so I'm a, I'm a DJ also. <laughs> and yes. <laughs> and so for me, I think when I'm going to DJ somewhere, it's important for me to kind of understand the context of where I'm going, right? So that I can play music of different gustos, right? Um, so that it's not exclusively just what I want or what I think the group wants. Um, and so I, and I was actually able to DJ, we had a Hispanic Heritage Month celebration at SDSU last, last year, and I was uh, invited to DJ. And so it was really important for me to not just play like La Chona, right? Because that's a very specific uh, population that's really gonna love that. Uh, but also being conscious of, all right, we got to throw in some merengue. We got to throw in some salsa or timba, um, reggaeton, obviously. And I think that that's, I mean, that's a very simple example, but it's this idea of, well, we got to play different genres, but in order to be able to play all these genres, we need to be uh, familiar with them in order to, instead of just throwing them out there and see what sticks. But I think it's our role as practitioners that are committed to, HSIs to take the time to understand what are those genres, right? And get to know them and appreciate them and then put them out there as opposed to just like throwing stuff out there. <laughs> um, and I think too, because a part of it isn't just representation. Um, and this is something that some of my work covers also is when we th think about indigeneity, particularly within like uh, the Chicano Chicana community. It's very dis it's it's distinct, and there's um, a lot of it. And as somebody who identifies with Chicana, uh, as a Chicana, I think it's been important to grapple a little bit with what that means as somebody who, of course, I know I have indigenous ancestral ties, but I didn't necessarily grow up with them, mm -hmm. nor have I necessarily been racialized as indigenous. I I, I don't have the same experiences as a lot of the peop uh, people that I 
that I was able to learn from indigenous folks. So there is um, this element of understanding that while yes, we may share some ancestry, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have the exact same experience. Um, and really think about how we treat indigeneity um, oftentimes as something we consume um, and how we look at mestizaje as an origin story and the way that we now consume indigeneity in order to kind of justify our identities. And so I think that we have to be very careful with that, right? And the way that we approach reconnecting by not invisibilizing people who have don't need to reconnect, right? Because they, they've lived it all their lives. And so learning from them and listening to, to them and recognizing that even in our attempts of maybe wanting to represent our indigenous heritage um, as a way of empowerment may inadvertently invisibilize other indigenous people. And so I think that there has to be much more solidarity around that. Um, and really, and it also takes me to working with native communities in diaspora, but also locally, right? And so what does that work look like when we work with native folks um, whose land we're living on? Absolutely, thank you for that. You give us so much to think about and all the things you're saying, I, I think about it as well. Like I'm like, yeah, I went to a university at Cal State that was very uh, Chicano, Chicanx, Chicana centric, uh, Mexican-American centric. And yeah, same. I, I've had to learn all these complications um, since, right? Since graduating, what if HSIs gave people that, right? Like, and, and, and provided that, that teaching and learning, it's such an important thing so that we aren't um, having to learn it later, right? Like what a great time to learn it within your university where you could have critical conversations um, without canceling things, right? When you talk about Chicano, right. you know, identifying as Chicana, right? And being okay with that, but also understanding the complications of it, right? Or, or the way it's been theorized, I guess. Um, yeah, right? We're not trying to, you're not trying to cancel it, right? It's just saying no. there's lots of things to think about. There's lots of dimensions. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, so this is another paper I'm working on that I was, <laughs> I was hoping to have a be hired somewhere before I put it out because um, it, it also grapples with our mascot at SDSC, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this very interesting and it's very generational as well in terms of people. Uh, obviously, this we know that native mascots are harmful, right? And it's been proven quantitatively, qualitatively mm -hmm. that these are harmful, not just for native peoples but for everyone in general, because it limits our understandings of indigeneity. But we have also this very strong narrative here in San Diego of people who say, no, well, the Aztec represents me. It makes me feel proud. It makes me feel recognized. And so um, it's been really interesting to, that's kind of the, my current research is around um, the use, the consumption of indigeneity and the problematics behind that, right? When it ends up um, dismissing indigenous voices um, for the sake of feeling for certain populations feeling represented by a mascot. Um, 
but hopefully I can get that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Those of us who are fans of your work, we can't wait for more because <laughs> um, you are, you're grappling with such important things to think about. And I mean, I think higher ed in general um, it can grapple with all these things you're grappling with, but HSI is, you know, really, we've, we've got a lot to think about and learn um, still, right? When we think about, about serving this, it, it's very complicated. Um one of the things I want to talk to you about beyond your research is your is your practice. I, you work in a native resource center at an HSI. Um, I, I can't name a person that's ever said, when I ask, what makes you an HSI? I've never heard someone say, we have a native resource center. Um, although I think the work you're doing and, and really complicating um, indigeneity, it absolutely is serving this, right? It, it makes all the sense in the world. So tell me a little bit about that and about the work you do and how a native resource center can absolutely represent serving this at an HSI? Yeah, definitely. I So I've been working at our Native Resource Center since since 2020, right? Um, and so it, it opened in 2020. Um, and so it's, it's relatively new. And we are one of nine other cultural or identity centers on campus. Um, and so I've, I've been fortunate enough because of my work around indigeneity, um, I was able to uh, teach in the American Indian Studies Department um, and provide kind of a, a hemispheric perspective on indigeneity, right? This, uh, because again, I mean, we the, the department's named American Indian Studies, obviously in deference to like it, um, its origins, right, 50 years ago. But the reality is that um, it's important to look at indigeneity globally, hemispherically, and think about how these particular borders have colonial violent borders have disrupted our relationships among each other. Um, so I was really fortunate to um, be able to then work with the Native Resource Center given my, my perspective and my experiences. And so a big part of the work that I've been doing at the NRC is highlighting the diasporic indigenous experience uh, through programming. Um, so I, I coordinate our, our peer mentor program um, and this is for our first year and transfer students. And so even in those conversations, we have a weekly seminar. Um, part of those conversations are, well, how do we define indigenous? Uh, what does that mean? Especially with students having very distinct relationships to their indigenous identity. Uh, but the other part of it has been developing campus programming around specific topics um, like we uh, last year we hosted a, a a workshop on challenging el dia de la raza and so we had a conversation around which in the US we know it as columbus day right or indigenous also indigenous people's day and we have in place of indigenous people's day we have a whole indigenous people's week of action through the native resource center and so it's important for us to highlight indigeneity uh, across the board. And so one of those was tackling like this idea of Dia de la Raza and challenging um, the Mestizo origin story. Um, I've also been able to bring in colleagues of mine, scholars who are um, uh, mainly Zapoteco and Nusavi Misteco scholars to come speak about their work. And this is hosted through the Native Resource Center. Um, and so they've been able to talk about um, language revitalization, 
uh, a friend of mine, uh, Melisa, Dr. Melissa Mesinas, was able to come and talk about um, the Zapotec Philharmonic Bands in LA as a, as a way of uh, cultural knowledge and preservation. Uh, and I've been also able to do some collaborative events with the Latinx Resource Center um, because these are really opportunities for students to realize that they don't have to just attend one center, right? And I think that's something that I appreciate with the folks at, at our different uh, cultural centers is we're trying to find more ways to collaborate with each other and also let students know that they don't have to commit to one center, right? They can use multiple centers. So uh, I've done a couple collaborations with our Latinx Resource Center. Uh, we screened a film called 499 that was directed by uh, Rodrigo Reyes that talks about 500 years of conquest. Uh, and we had a Q&A with the director and we had stu a student from the Native Resource Center and a student from the Latinx Resource Center develop these questions. Um, and so I love that the students were able to work together and think about the intersections that exist, particularly think about conquest and are we celebrating 500 years or are we questioning it and what are the outcomes? Uh, and then just this last semester, uh, I was able to collaborate with our Latinx Resource Center and our Undocumented Resource Center to think about indigeneity from an undocumented perspective um, and think about uh, how do these three centers work with many students, right? Um, and that we share a lot of students. And so we were we screened a film called Mariposas del Campo that talks about um, mainly uh, Misteco New Savi students in Oxnard and their journey in pursuing higher education. And we were able to have uh, two of the students from the film uh, be part of our Q&A. And so we had students from each of the three centers come up with questions and, and it was great. I think that to me, I see these as opportunities or to, to grow these conversations. I, um, one of the students from the film, she, well, let me see. So one of the students from, uh, from that was doing the Q and A, he asked one of the participants in the film, how she identified as being Latina. And I think that her response said, actually, I don't identify as Latina. I am Mixteca. And that, it was really great to see that happen, that conversation happen live, because it, it really allowed, even students who are affiliated with the Latinx Resource Center and the Undocumented Resource Center to realize that even many students may not even adhere to that term, right? They'd rather adhere to their Pueblo Originario. They may adhere more closely with their community before they even use the word Latino, even though they would technically be categorized as such. Um, and so it was a really great conversation to have uh, with the students. And so I have a couple things planned for this, for this semester. Um, but it's good. I'm glad that these conversations are happening on campus and especially now that we can do more in-person stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a lot to learn from the work that y'all are doing um, about breaking down these artificial borders or even violent borders, because even borders between cultural centers can be quite violent. 
right? Mm-hmm. People talk about that a lot, right? Like, I mean, even we think about, you know, uh, Black centers and Latinx centers, right? African-American cultural centers and Latinx cultural centers, like those lines are, are can be violent, right? And, and unnecessary, right? Because you can cross over. Um, you can cross over to AAPI, a PETA center, to, you know, Pride Center, queer LGBTQIA mm-hmm. center. Um, so I think, you know, the work that you're doing, it, it absolutely is serving us and, and hopefully folks that are listening will look to y'all for some guidance as they think about how how do you break down those artificial borders between cultural centers? You know, I think think, Mm -hmm. uh, because of these types of events, we've been able to let students know you can come to the NRC as well, right? And Mm. I've been able to meet several um, New Sabi Misteco students that didn't know perhaps that the NRC was a space available to them and now and now they regularly come. So I feel like even just having these programmings on campus let students know that, oh, this is another resource. And, mm-hmm. and in many cases, they may feel more identified in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and part and some of my dissertation work, and that's something I'd like to explore further, was a lot of students, while they talked about these invalidating moments in their Latinx center spaces, they talked about the importance of being able to join native spaces on campus and that that's where they actually found validation. They found community um, joining native student organizations. So I think there's a lot there to further unpack in terms of how do we make students feel included on campus? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, so just changing hats because you have many hats. You wear many hats, um, both in your, you know, in your, in your uh, nine to five, and then even beyond. Like you said, you DJ, you are. I mean, you have a lot, of, a lot going on. But let's put on your your teaching hat because you also teach, um, and a lot of the HSI and servingness is often talked about in the classroom, right? Like, what do we do in the classroom? And that's what a lot of faculty want to know is like, how do we be better servers, right, of our students in the classroom? Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. You state in your teaching philosophy um, that it's framed around culturally responsive strategies that validate my students' lived realities and prior knowledges. So how does that pedagogical approach, which I believe is yours, regardless if you were at HSI or not, right? Um, But how does it enhanced serviness, right? Why, why is that a good approach you think at, a, at an HSI? Well, okay. I think like I mentioned before, in terms of practitioners, knowing who the communities you're serving, I think as faculty, it's important to also know who's in your classroom. And so as basic as it may sound, like allowing students to, to share their positionalities is important for me. A lot of the teach the classes I teach are around writing, so they're they're writing communication or research and expository writing, but through an indigenous lens, uh, through our department. So actually, I have my student. I give them examples of positionality statements, and then I encourage them to then write their own. Um, and I think for a lot of students, it may be the first time that they have to name the name the communities they're a part of, um, and so it is. It is a lengthy process, but I think that it's important for me to learn who's in my classroom, but also for my students to be able to name the communities that they're from and not feel like it's not allowed or, or that they shouldn't talk about it. Uh, because some students do come in uh, with, I mean, with these very like colorblind ideologies that are so pers- persistent in K-12. And so having having them be able to name 
their identities and their communities is really helpful. Um, I think I, I think the other thing that I, I like to do is integrate other styles of yeah. learning. So it, I think that art and movement are all these really important ways of, of cultural expression. And so having students see that in the classroom, a lot of times challenges these very Western notions of what is knowledge, right? And so mm -hmm. a lot of times seeing their own cultures or their own music or their own dances being portrayed in the classroom is really powerful. Um, and I remember uh, one of the folks that I was able to um, interview in my dissertation talked about that where she took a class um, and they were talking about her specific indigenous community and she said this is a teachable topic and that and just by realizing that it was it really changed the course of her educational journey knowing that oh we can talk about these things in the classroom these are considered academic um, and I think that that's really important uh, and then the other element that I like to do is bring in people from the communities into the classroom. And that's another way to disrupt this idea that, I mean, I'm the sage on the stage, right? And I'm imparting knowledge and they have nothing, <laughs> nothing to offer. Um, and so bringing in, uh, especially elders in the community to come and do particular activities, uh, especially in my, in my seminar, um, with El Chap, the peer mentor program. Uh, we bring in elders to talk about beadwork and thinking about beadwork as this grounding um, opportunity to also create storytelling. So storytelling is really big in the classroom uh, as well as basket weaving and, and using all of these traditional methods also as metaphors for these larger concepts that we're talking about. Um, really facilitates dialogue. So I think in that way, I think about like culturally sustaining practices that for many will validate what they're already doing at home. And then for others, they're being exposed to entirely something that they're, that's very new to them and realize that all of this is academic, right? Just because you didn't read it in a book doesn't mean <laughs> that it's not academic or that it's not uh, a legitimate type of knowledge. And so I think that giving those examples allows my students to then think about their own lived experiences and name those as, uh, as academic as well, right? In terms of how they wanna pursue the rest of their, their college journey and the topics they wanna research. Um, in this last class that I taught, um, we, it's a research class. Uh, but obviously, from a Native perspective, we talk about how harmful a Native uh, research can be for Native communities, especially when we think about the origins of anthropology and things like that. Um, and this like extraction of information while these communities are not benefiting from the actual research. Um, and so in our final project, I had students conduct research in their own communities. So it took a whole semester for many to name what that community was. And we were doing insider research in terms of how, instead of going out and interviewing a native person, which is, I've heard a lot of my students like come tell me like, guess what? In this class, a student approached me and asked, oh, can I interview you? Because I'm supposed to interview a native person. And I'm like, that's so harmful. Like, um, I think 
we did the reverse, right? It's like, no, interview somebody from your own community about these particular topics we're discussing in the class um, and think about how, how can we create change in our own communities as opposed to seeking um, communities outside of us, right? And naming what we think is going to be better. Um, so that was uh, uh, the, the papers that the students submitted were fantastic. Like a lot of them are grappling with like their white grandmas <laughs> Or and and actually several of my students who um, were Latinx were interviewing family members in terms of their understanding of mestizaje and really wanting to dig a little bit deeper in terms of their own ancestral origins and thinking about uh, how patriarchy falls into that as well. So it was really the papers were fantastic. They're really interesting. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. And um yeah, thank you for bringing in the art and the dancing, because I did want to ask you about that, because you do, you know, that's very obvious in, in, in your work, you know, you're even when you review your website, right, art and dancing, um, community all come into, it's intertwined with who you are, that's why I said it, when, when I hear you speak, you know, um, it, it comes in, right? You're like, you are who you are. And all of that seems to come into the classroom. It comes into your practice. Um, and students seem to respond to that, right? Like, and also you're disrupting what they think of as real knowledge, right? And how powerful that is to say, yes, this is absolutely knowledge, right? That we should be sharing. So, so thank you for for getting into that. Any, any other thoughts on the art and the dance that you didn't cover on, on how you bring it into your, your practices? Uh, I, I teach a class called Indigenous Women and the Arts, which I love teaching <laughs> because I'm basically like, we're just going to watch some dancing and all this stuff. Um, but no, I think I also look at the arts as um, as somebody who was always very introverted and very shy. And I never really I think about my college experience where like I never really asked questions or got engaged in my education until I went to UNAM. But I always had dance as this like, um, this mechanism for expression that I, at the time, didn't feel I could use in other spaces. And so I think that having that conversation with my students about how there's multiple forms of expression um, is important because then you can transfer those skills into speaking, into presenting, into writing. Uh, I see, I see writing as this very like beautiful um, expression as well that I tie to dance and and especially around music. Um, one of the things I like to do for each of my classes is create a, a playlist for students, and so it, we end up making it a community playlist. And we're always trying to find songs that relate to the topics that we're talking about. Uh, and it's just kind of a, a, a capsule of what that semester was like tied to music. Uh, and I think, and later on, students will have conversations about that. I think music is definitely an opportunity to have conversations. It's something that I play at the start of every class as a way to just like get everybody in the mood. I teach a lot of 8 a.m. classes. So music is really helpful in kind of just like getting people awake and a little bit more uh, excited about the day. So I, I see it, music as like a tool, not just for teaching, but also just like setting setting the mood, right? That's what DJs do. We create the ambiente. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I also talk about art 
as a healing practice. And so a lot of times when we have, when we're discussing really difficult topics in the classroom, I tend to like to have um, an art response. And that's something that also through the Native Resource Center, we do and shout out to our assistant director, Jen Clay, who's also an art therapist. So a lot of times when we have programming or presentations that are obviously very heavy around colonization, boarding schools, we always try to have some sort of art response to process. Um, and so we see art definitely as this tool for healing um, when we're having these types of conversations. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You have me thinking about all kinds of things like how do I use music? How do I use art in my class? Um, because you're right, it's it's so important to just even just set the mood, right, for the day, especially if you're at an 8 a.m. class or an evening class, right? After people have had yes. full days. It's like at all, all different times we need a mood <laughs> to learn. <laughs> yes. Um so another thing that you, um, you know, that I know you're very engaged in the community and, um, again, something that's part of just your, your practices, how you, how you show up, um, just daily for people, for your community, um, for the students you're working with. Um, but I, I we talk about community engagement in the servingness framework. And it's something that I, since I started writing about HSIs, the community piece that comes out for people, right? They're like, we serve our communities, right? HSIs are, they should serve communities, right? That's an important piece um, for a lot of people. That is, that is a piece they talk about um, when it comes to to thinking about serving this. Um, so I know I know you volunteer, you know, in the community. You just published this article with with Doctora Felicia Herrera um, about community centered STEM identity. So talk to us about that, right? About community engagement um, and how that becomes a part of serving this or can be a part of serving this, and particularly in the way you 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 know you show up um, in the community in your practices and in your pedagogies? Yeah, so I mean, I think that at the core of everything that I do professionally, it's everything's rooted in what I've been able to do in the community. And so I think a lot of this work, I, is, I, I give tribute to the learning that I had working, working with and continuing to work with uh, Familia Indígena Unida. That's been a really central, um, experience for me and still being able to collaborate with them for the last 15 years. Uh, Familia Indígena Unida is a, a grassroots organization here in San Diego that works with uh, the Misteco Nusabi community, migrant community here. Uh, and it was created by two Misteca college graduates who again wanted to create a space uh, for themselves and for younger generations to feel pride in uh, who they are as indigenous people. Uh, and so they uh, created this program that includes uh, after school tutoring for youth, um, as well as English language classes for the parents and also Spanish language classes for the parents. So uh, I, I started working with Familia Indigena Unida in 2007. I actually was a Spanish literacy teacher. So I, I speak some Mixteco, our new Sabi, and shout out to my maestra Angelina Trujillo. Uh, and so because of that, I was able to uh, work with um, mainly uh, women elders in the community who um, needed help learning how to read and write uh, in Spanish, right? First, because that's a language they spoke. Um, so that then eventually they could take the English classes. So that was something that 
um, the founders of the organization notice is, okay, well, we want to teach people to write or to speak English, but if you don't have reading and writing as a tool, it becomes incredibly difficult. Uh, and so some of the work that I did was doing some of the literacy in Spanish um, uh, with, with the community members. And I think that for me, that experience was really transformational, understanding that even though geographically we may have ties to the same spaces, right, in Oaxaca and Guerrero, but the reality is that I came into that space as a mestiza with so much privilege. Uh, and understanding that my lived experiences were different. And I, it was in this community center right, back in 2007, where I became, became very close to a lot of the youth. Um, and the youth were the ones that would tell me their experiences in school and how some of them were embarrassed to have their parents come to, camp, to campus because they didn't want them to speak that language, meaning Misteco. And so I started to recognize that the repercussions of uh, this colonial, the colonial hierarchies that were being perpetuated among little ones, right? Where one of the little ones was told me that it was a secret that he wouldn't tell anybody that he was Misteco because they would make fun of him. And so I think that being part, being embedded in that community space was really important and informed really the trajectory of my work. And so that's why I mentioned when we think about uh, as practitioners and scholars, we can learn so much from what's happening not at the university, right? And in order to, in order to disrupt uh, these colonial systems at the university, we have to see other ways of living, right? As opposed to just putting band-aids on the systems that are already in place because they'll continuously continue to ex ex exclude people. But if we look on the outside and see what is happening uh, in community-based spaces, we can learn a lot. And I've learned a lot from Familia Indígena Unida in, in also the co-founders intentionality of building that space. Uh, we do a lot of intergenerational learning where the elders, uh, for example, we have uh, Dia de los Muertos or Kibinji in Misteco, and they come and teach about Dia de Muertos, but from a very specific new savvy um, way of celebrating, right? And so this is also another example of, well, Dia de Muertos is not monolithic, right? And especially now that it's so commercial <laughs> and we all think that, oh, this is, I see like memes on like, this is how you construct your altar. And I'm like, no, there's actually different ways of doing your altar, something that's celebrated, not just in Mexico. And so I think that I learned a lot in that community center and learning, okay, well, they're speaking specific to, this is a Mixteco, actually a Mixteca Baja way of setting up your altar and integrating language and having students engage in that. Um, so again, I think learning from what's happening outside, then ultimately informs the things that we can do um, at the at the university. And I think and a perfect example is Day of the Dead. <laughs> um, that's actually one of the, I've done this two years in a row. I have a, I host um, a presentation. I forgot what I call it. Interrogating Day of the Dead or something like that, like diverse indigenous traditions. 
And so I'll usually invite students or uh, colleagues from the community to come and speak about how they specifically celebrate Day of the Dead. Um, that's distinct from this like very traditional like cocoa, <laughs> cocoa celebration. Um, and so I think that's kind of how, oh, the community informed what we can do at campus, right? Is we want to talk about, we want to showcase uh, Latinx cultural heritage, but by just talking about Day of the Dead from this very like Disney way of doing things, we'll then continue, like we'll continue to exclude people who have been doing this ancestral practice all their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It makes me just really think about the importance of bringing in um, students and community and alumni, right? Like you're bringing in all these different ideas of like, we can't just create something like, oh, okay, we have to do this Latinx thing to be more of an HSI. It's like, no, actually you should be spending time learning with and inviting and, and spending good amount of time with folks who this is their way of knowing and being um, before just doing it and expecting we're going to, are going to come. Right. And love you for it. Right. That's the thing is right. like institutions want to be loved for it. Like, see, we did day of the dead. And it's like, yeah, but it was really problematic <laughs> the way you did it. Right. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that uh, again. Like I said, I, I learned so much, um, you know, in reading your work and, and learning with you. So um, one other question I wanted to a- ask as we, as we wrap up and not something you've necessarily written about, but something that I think about a lot is the HSIs um, on the border, the Fronterizo HSIs. Um, nobody's really started to theorize that yet, but I see it's coming. Um, it's definitely starting to come and people are really starting to think about it you're at an HSI very close to the border. And obviously as a transnational identified person, right. That you, you've had that life of, of living that fronteriza life. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Should HSIs uh, living along the border, which is massive. I, I saw a, um, a map of how many HSIs are actually along in the borderlands. Um, there's a lot, um, you know, what kind of things should those HSIs be thinking about distinctly about that, that borderland space? I, I do. I agree. I think that the HSI fronteriza identity is very unique and distinct. And yeah, there isn't too much written about it. And honestly, my experience with HSIs are all along the border. So, and and I think I forget because I'm so used to just like existing on both sides of the border that I, I forget that that's a very unique uh, experience. But I absolutely feel like they're there's an opportunity to tap into what does that mean and also think about the assets it creates, right? That for a lot of students, uh, and especially where schools where a large amount of the population are live a trans-border life to really highlight that experience, but not as a challenge, which I think often... Oftentimes we focus on like, oh, they had to wake up, pobrecito, a las tres de la mañana, and they had to commute, and yeah, which I think is terrible. But I think at the same time we can look at it as, look how much uh, the student is bringing in terms of their lived experience. But I also feel that HSIs at the border have a really can potentially have a strong role in trying to disrupt the border. I think becoming much more engaged in conversations that exist in terms of the limitations the border creates um, and creating transnational partnerships is really important and can really inform um, 
student experiences. I think also the way we perceive Latinidad may be different as well, especially when we have immediate access. Many of us do. Again, not everybody has the ability to cross the border. But I think in defining Latinidad, there's something really distinct about being alongside the border that makes it really special. And honestly, I, I've been here, I've been living in San Diego for 16 years now. And even though I've been like looking for jobs elsewhere, and sometimes I think about moving closer to home, um, there's something about, I don't know how I could function without being next to the border <laughs> or just knowing that I'm so close. There's something about that that makes it really difficult to want to leave elsewhere. I think also too, something that I've been able to do more through the Native Resource Center is when we think about indigeneity, for instance, we can look at it and problematize the border, right? When we think about Kumiai land, we think about Kumiai land exists on both uh, San Diego and in Baja, right? And so having these greater conversations on uh, what, what do borders do to indigenous communities, right, that are split? And that's something that in a lot of my classes we, we talk about and we have presence of um, Kumiai folks from Baja that also teach Kumiai language um, at San Diego State. So there's a lot of opportunities also to trouble the border in that way, right? When we think about indigeneity and, and how these borders continue to disrupt. So I, I feel like if anything, I think as an HSI, a big part of our role at the border is to continuously critique it until we dismantle it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's the big goal. Is I, I think our, our, our ultimate goal should be to, we have some sort of platform to support the eventual dismantling of the border. <laughs> exactly. I love that. <laughs> if that was the goal, but you're right. Like it's such a, like to just be in that space is like HSIs need to take responsibility to say, what is our role here? Um, but it is the borderlands is an important space for a lot of people. As you mentioned, right. Even thinking about moving out of that space, you're like, I don't know. Right. Like this is, this is my life. Right. Like it's, it's, it's a distinct space. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot more grappling, um, to be done in that area. So hopefully you'll, you'll start to add that to the list of things you're, you're thinking yes. about and writing about, because <laughs> I think it needs to come from scholars who are in those spaces, right? It definitely needs to be people who have that everyday lived experience um, of living in the borderlands, being in the, the fronterizo HSIs. So final question, people who log in, they want to know, ¿Qué pasa HSI? So what's your response? What you think? ¿Qué pasa HSIs? ¿Qué pasa HSIs? We're getting there, but we need to do better. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's a lot going on, but a lot to be done. Well, thank you for sharing this yes. time and this space with us. I really appreciate having you as a guest today. And I hope our listeners um, have learned a lot with you. And we'll look into more of some of the, the great work that you're doing. So thank you for being here with us today. Good. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you asking a lot of these questions. I think they're, they're really important. And I'm excited to think about conversations out of this and motivating me to submit these manuscripts I'm sitting on. <laughs> <laughs> of course, get them out there. <laughs>